welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz. I am your host, Danny Katz. I am an author, journalist, and a quantum languaging coach and consultant. What that means is that I teach people how language programs consciousness, how language programs reality at large, and how to transform reality and evolve our consciousness with language. I've also been known to cultivate and share an opinion or two or 12 about culture and consciousness and how they are evolving, devolving, and being manipulated by the powers that were. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to fostering critical thinking while supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated, realized, amazing version of yourself. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. (laughs) And think. Given the radical uptick in censorship over the past few years, combined with the complete co-opting slash decimation of my own personal industry, journalism, I started Word Up to have a free speech-friendly platform in which to engage exploratory, solutions-based conversations with visionaries, mystics, original thinkers, and rebel badasses who are helping to make the world more wonderful. The first half of my interviews run between 30 to 90 minutes and are always posted here for free public listening. The second halves are reserved for paid supporters on my Patreon and my Locals platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you can access all of my second half conversations along with oodles of other bonus content and opportunities to drop in with me, to drop in with our High Vibe tribe, and lots of other awesome things. In addition to interviews, Word Up also features quantum languaging upgrades, planetary service announcements, and propaganda analysis, which I call Spot the Propaganda. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing your sacred attention with me and our high vibe tribe of change makers. Be sure to click that subscribe button so you can stay abreast of our every episode. Thank you for also clicking the like button, for sharing far and wide, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As well, if you are gleaning any value whatsoever from these shows, consider supporting me on Locals and or Patreon. And as you are wanting to learn more about my quantum languaging coaching and consulting services or nab copies of my books, find me on dannycats.com as well as on quantumlanguaging.com. Okay, I think that's it for our housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Hey, superstars, welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I'm still on the edge of my seat about uh, the conversation that I get to share with you today because um, I was blessed with the opportunity to interview one of my heroes, Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen Jenkinson is the author of Die Wise and a number of other books. He is a wisdom keeper and a a rebel who has and continues to revolutionize the uh, North American palliative care industry. He's really challenged our death phobic culture. And, you know, his work invites us into a deeper 
healthier conversation with the reality that every single being incarnate on this planet is facing, which is called our death and the death of of everyone and everything that we know and love. Before we dive into this conversation, I'm reminding you to click that subscribe button, to like, to share, to comment. Also reminding you that the way the show is organized, the first half is free on all of the audio podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. You can find it most easily on my Locals channel. The second half is available for paying supporters on my Locals and Patreon platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half conversations, um, advanced notice of webinars, workshops, books, live events, special discounts, et cetera, et cetera. So choose the platform of your choice, if not both, because and rocks. Um, and support me there to be able to access the second half of this conversation. Honestly, the second half of this conversation um, totally makes a year's worth of um, Patreon local support worth, worth it. Stephen Jenkinson is such a wellspring of of wisdom, of sanity, uh, especially at this crazy time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this particular episode far and wide so that we can help support our nearest and dearest in up-leveling our intelligence around death and dying. And buckle up, prepare to enjoy this powerful conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Well, there's so many places I've I've such a list of things, but I from what I know, you have been pushing against the grain of the North American palliative paradigm for the bulk of your career and I'm wondering what it's like to be that kind of rebel to push against dominant narratives um so consistently. I don't think it's um I don't think it serves a, a person's um, basic stance in the world to take an oppositional position for the sake of maintaining consistency. That's the first thing I'd say. So I think it's 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 you're well advised if you see the trouble, which I was lucky enough to see the trouble early on, and you translate what you see into something that seems workable. That's the responsibility is not to bitch and gripe, moan, complain, point, accuse, berate, condemn, etc. I mean, th those things are, uh, needless to say, uh, part and parcel of the deal now, but I never found them dignified. And uh, dignity to me is a really important element of, of proposing otherwise. In other words, you have to be credible. You just can't be, you know, belligerent. Yeah, credibility is the the heart of the of the operation. And if you're lucky enough to see something that seems temporarily uh, or otherwise not available to others, this confers upon you responsibility not not a not a privilege, not a not a like giving vent to your character wrinkles for God's sake, you know. So. I was there not on behalf of anyone, but I was lucky enough to be with enough dying people who, who 
probably should have died otherwise. They, they should have had a better go of it. And they were very complicit in how bad it got. So if you're busy taking sides, you would miss that very important detail that there's a lot of complicity inside the arrangement amongst the various players, right? And I don't mean that to sound um, conspiratorial. Uh, there's an element of that in there for sure that comes via big pharma and medical technology more broadly. But um, people are not at their best when they're dying, are they? Clearly not. And uh, if, you if you're waiting until then to get your fecal matter in order, then you've, there's such a thing as too late. So I was in the too late business, sadly. And my responsibility was to try to alert people before too late became the only reality worth talking about. Mm. But you can't, can you do it forever? I, I hope not. You, the responsibility you have is to work yourself out of a job. I think that's a fair thing to say. You, you, um, if you have any effectiveness at all, it's not success, it's redundancy. Mm -hmm. you, know, you become sort of a foregone conclusion. You become, like I jokingly said, yesterday's news. You, you, you've worked in such a fashion that you've tried to democratize what was entrusted to you to see. Uh, so that doesn't require belligerence all the time, or even most of the time, uh, maybe occasionally. And occasionally you give vent to your frustration or your, your anger at things, the intransigence of things, the clear, man, the, the clear fact that they won't change appreciably during the course of your lifetime. Forget your career. Your lifetime won't see much adjustment, right? So you could have a sense of terrible futility or worse that comes from the conviction that you should be able to see in real time the consequences of what you've tried to do. But that's a, there's an awful lot of vanity in there and the notion that somehow you're supposed to be the beneficiary of your own work. And I don't, I don't, I don't suspect that that's the case. I, I'm the beneficiary of other people's work. My own work is in, in, in place in hopes of benefiting someone, right? So at the end of the day, you know, speaking as a farming person now, when I'm asked routinely, as I am, when's the best time to plant a tree? The answer is always the same. 25 years ago, <laughs> that was the best time. If you want a tree today, that's what you had to have done. But of course, you didn't do it. That's why you're asking about it now. So first thing you do is plant a tree, understanding you'll have a twig during the course of your lifetime. That's, that's really all it'll be. But... The fact that you have a question about trees at all means there's other trees around. And that probably means that 25 or so years ago, someone that you'll never know or meet was engaged in the, in the heredity of forestry in some fashion. They, either by accident or by design, a tree ensued as a consequence of their little machinations in the world. And that's why you know about trees, not because you're so smart but because somebody saw to it that there were trees before you. And then that's when you realize that's what you become. That's the conduit. And along the way, as your question implies, there's a certain amount of collateral damage. There's a certain amount of mayhem and wear and tear and, and you know, getting, getting un, how should I put it? Unenamored with the sound of your own voice. That can happen. And, uh, and then you succumb to an interview to wonder if you if you really should 
you know, fall silent like the desert saints uh, were prone to do. And I can imagine that day coming, mm -hmm. uh, largely because not out of spite, but only because, man, you know, I did my best. That was it. Uh, anything more is an elaboration on the theme. Uh, I think when I get there and the and the well feels dry, I hope I'll have the good sense to recognize that it's uh, it's it's time for quiet for me and time to, if I democratize the wisdom available to me at all, it's got to cash out and it's not unlikely to cash out if I'm still making noise. Mm. Mm -hmm. Powerful. I I mean, from there, there are so many places that I'd like to go. I mean, I, I see the wisdom in what you're saying. I, I think of the dialogues between Krishna and Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita of like, it's not about the results of your labor. It's about the labor. And then once you do that, then it's in God's hands. I'm curious to know how you see people being complicit in their own, I mean, to use your phrase, bad death or bad dying. Sorry, what is it about you'd like to hear more? Um, how you see people being complicit. What did it look like you mean? Yes, or, or where were people dropping the ball on their own dying, or their own death process? Okay. Well, as you'd expect, nobody ever thought they were. Rarely, if ever, did anybody see it that way. And when they finally had a sense of the abyss, I mean, the, the kind of moral existential abyss, um, they were often so plowed under with symptoms and so on that there wasn't much, really wasn't much to be done, you see. Between the symptoms and the side effects of the drugs and all the rest, there's the, the, the window where it could have been otherwise is closed. It will not open again. So in other words, grown-ups know that there's such a thing as too late. And that's what you have to perpetrate upon dying people. They have an obligation to the people they claim to love to conduct themselves as if there's such a thing as too late. So you can tell what I'm telling you here is that uh, so many people die, spent their dying time not dying. That's what they did with it. That's the clearest articulation I can give you of what complicity sounds like and looks like. See, it's a, it doesn't look like a capital offense. It doesn't look like a Geneva Convention contravention, does it? It looks like personal choice because it almost always was. But because it's a personal choice, doesn't make it right. Mm -hmm. That's an extremely unpopular view today. Mm -hmm. like personal choice, by definition, is kissed by the saints. <laughs> well, I saw what personal choice did to people with, with very little in the way of a, the fundament of an education about what it means to be a human in a troubled time. And I can tell you, it's not a pretty sight, people exercising their rights. It's far from a pretty sight. As they did so, it's no surprise. Where, whereabouts are you sitting right now? Which country, which? I'm in New Mexico. Okay, then. So you may be aware that my country in Canada here, we legalized, uh, they call it MAID now, medical assistance in dying. Yes. I've lost track of how long it feels like, six or seven years, something like this. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, convention, the conventional um, agitation around the issue was it's supposed to subvert and prevent suffering, or at least undo suffering, at least unnecessary suffering. But you know what? When you're in the trenches, 
all suffering seems unnecessary. Mm-hmm. No suffering seems viable, legitimate, belonging, none of those things. It's just, it's not tolerated, you see. So what, what made or euthanasia has become is another exercise in self-determination, another exercise of your personal dominion, mm-hmm. personal sovereignty, and so on. Here's the thing. When you exercise that sovereignty at the end of your life and, and pull out, so to speak, uh, well before you're dead, you're not going to live one of the consequences that you spin out into the air by your refusal to die. Mm. Not one. Eventually, your opportunity to live any of them, including the benefits as well as the detriments, will be lost to you. But the rest of us, you know it. The rest of us will have to live the consequences of everything you did, everything you failed to do, all the stories you didn't tell, everything you kept to yourself, all the weird vows of silence you made, all the hysteria and the unnecessary torment and terror there at the end, all of the, you know, slack-jawed and drooling, overly medicated. I could go on and on and on, but there's no point. And the graphics are not really the point. The, The point is, it's not clear that in a consumer culture, we should be the consumers of our death. It, I also feel like it begs the question, like who determines how much suffering is necessary or unnecessary and who are we as mere mortal humans to claim to have the authority to know that? Yeah. Well, uh, this is, this, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah. And I know, I mean, I know you talk in, in um, Die Wise about like the unfairness of children dying. Like who who's to say that this world is fair? Who's to say what is fair and what isn't? You know, like I, I just appreciate you opening up that can of worms for us to question. Yeah. Yeah. The reference there is not quite fairness that with respect to dying children. It was the notion I was trying to evoke there was something I came to call the book of supposed to. Mm-hmm. There's a book of supposed to, everybody knows what it says. Nobody's ever seen it, but we can all quote it chapter and verse, apparently. So as your questions are leading us in the direction of, wait a minute, who wrote this book? Is it a book? Is it there? Why does it have so much traction in a troubled time? In times of, in times of crisis, we speak with this nodding certainty that so-and-so would want it this way, that... You know, this is not right, or this is right because they're old now, and so they've had a full life, so now so now it's okay, and, you know, whatever it is. So more pointedly to the question you asked off the top, this is the default arrangement. So just so anybody listening thinks what you're hearing from me is opinions, you're not. There's no opinions in what I'm telling you. I'm telling you what I saw and the consequences of what I saw. I have no reason to misrepresent it to you. I got no, there's no benefit for me in overly exaggerating things. Did I get it? Could I have got it wrong? Nope. Maybe in the early going, I could have got it wrong. I didn't know what I was looking at, but I was there long enough and it was an intense enough stay that um, I don't think I got it wrong at all. And as it happens, not bragging here, but over the years, there's been more and more sad uh, collaboration with my concern 
from people inside the trade, but much more importantly to me, from people, you know, from quote, the ordinary walks of life who are going to be visited by exactly the same things minus all the expertise. See, so, I mean, I'd go out on a limb and suggest this to you. I'm from a country, so are you, where uh, the medical system, no matter what you think of its efficacy, whether it's well-funded and the part that insurance companies play and all the rest, but at the very least, there's this notion that uh, um, we're doing everything we can and we should be able to have access to everything that's possible to do. What is that called, that arrangement in a retail situation? That's called Trader Joe's. It's called Whole Foods. It's got, you know, choose your chain where your, your options seem utterly limitless. And in some weird way, they are utterly limitless. And how do humans seem to be with a lack of limits? Do we, is the best of us come forward when suddenly everything's possible? As you, you know, very intelligently said in your question. Is that the way it looks? Because, you know, through the ages, we've been warned to respect the limits that are entrusted to us. I mean, that's a fundament of earth-based religion or earth-based spirituality is you respect the limits and the frailties and the endings that were entrusted to you. Not just your personal death, but all the endings that preceded your death, you see? So this, this mitigates against be all you can be, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Properly so. Be all you can be has turned into a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Get everything you can. In insulate yourself by whatever means necessary. Think of this sorry, tragic passion play that's being played out off the coast of Newfoundland as you and I are speaking right now. Mm -hmm. By the time people hear this, it will be over, okay? These people are lost in this little submersible thing because they've transgressed fundamentally. I'm not saying it's a punishment. I'm saying it's a consequence. There's something that happened to the Titanic. Now it's happened again. Are there any questions left to ask about whether there's places in this world we simply don't belong? We have no business being there. Five more lives coughed up into the ridiculous fantasy-making business that if you have enough money, you can go visit the Titanic. And from what I heard just before I got on to talk with you, they're dead now. And they died, you know, in the last few days that you were playing this podcast and I was working on the farm and, and all the other things. And it's, it's not, a, I mean, it's so unconscionably indefensible, mm -hmm. this thing. And it's occupied extraordinary amounts of search and rescue and all this kind of stuff. And anyhow, it's just the whole thing is sometimes make you shake your head and wonder what's it going to take. And I'm reminded again by the beautiful observation, tragic observation that W.H. Auden made about modernity. He said, seems to me we'd rather be defeated than be persuaded. I really like what you said about places where we don't really belong. And I've had that thought, you know, anytime I've been scuba diving and all the equipment necessary and I'm underwater and I'm thinking we do not belong here. And um, 
in terms of like this technological push forward, I'm always wondering just because we can, is this in the best interests of humanity and our planet? And when are we going to start asking that question or bring that question in to this innovation conversation and start to to temper it with sanity? Uh, Not voluntarily. It's clearly not going to happen voluntarily because we're until fairly recently, I would say we were still in the land of voluntary restraint, mm-hmm. voluntary cutting back. I don't think we're in the land of voluntary anything, basically, to speak of now. I think the consequences are washing up on shore. They're out there in the Pacific in the form of a plastic island. There's, you know, choose your disaster, choose your catastrophe. These things are part of a, of a, a story that's telling itself you know, across continents and across weather systems and time zones and so on. And I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm I'm saying this with any kind of glee or a sense that I'm I've been born out as personally right in this matter. Quite the contrary. This is so fucking tragic, excuse my language. But that's what it is. It's it's unspeakably unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And and still there's nothing in the circuitry that seems convincing enough. I mean, if COVID and all its opportunities, and it was tragic for some, as we know, but it didn't kill anywhere near the number of people that was it was expected to kill, you know, heading into the thing. Mm-hmm. So here's what we got. We got a near miss epidemiologically. That's what it appears to have been, a near miss. And from that opportunity, was provided to us at almost no serious cost, a vision of what being being turned against by life would actually be like. Mm -hmm. And yet we turn against life so predictably that it's it's heartbreaking to see it, no? Anyway. Do you see uh, the global response to what they call COVID-19 as a reflection of our mass death phobia? I don't think so. I, I don't I don't think it got that far. I think it, I think the, the principal offense that uh, the coronavirus represented sort of mythically to people was the cur- curtailment of personal rights and freedoms. I think that was the that's the actual beast in a culture that's that swoons over the rights of the individual as the dominant culture in North America does. Mm-hmm. I think that was the principal offense, sadly. And the one you're asking about comes way down the line, if it shows up on the list at all. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, that's its enduring legacy, if you will, as we sit here and talk about it now. You know, the notion that, oh, they're taking over, oh, they're infiltrating the school system, oh, you know, what's science? The science matter. Is it anything to be trusted? Oh, what's your news sources? And and it just, it washes back on itself like a bad sewer back, back up. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't see anything realized, sadly. I see many things feared, many things resented, mm-hmm. uh, many things fantasized over, and um, um, sort of the... Con- conspiratocracy that ensued from it all, which is in no sense has it played itself out yet. And I guess most emphatically, 
when I think about the consequences of all the isolation and the the clear inability that so many people realized was true about them, that the bounce back that they imagined for themselves, the resiliency that they imagined, it's not there. It may never have been there. Because the 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 life that is the 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 usual urban life that's lived is so leveraged. What do you mean by leveraged? I mean, I mean it's so mortgaged. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking really now about a financial instrument mortgage, but I mean the notion that so many things have to be in place for your little life not to be completely implode, mm-hmm. like ongoingly. How many infrastructure realities have to be in place? How many? You know, the water system, Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to overwhelm people with the, oh my godness. Of it. I'm just saying here that the fact that we don't know where anything we rely on comes from anymore. That's what gets revealed in something like the COVID-19 scenario over the course of two and a half or three years. You really don't know where anything that your life is predicated upon is born is crafted, what it costs, the places it came from, the little chips in your phone, you know, all the stuff I don't know anything about. I wouldn't know how to t- even talk about them. All the Noam Chomsky level stuff, you know, that I don't know. All those things, they're a quiet kind of haunt that sits on your shoulder like those medieval woodcut demonic figures mm-hmm. and whispering to you, you have no idea, do you? You don't know how any of this works, do you? You don't know what's coming next, do you? And so I, don't, I think fear is too strong. The word I'd use to characterize modernity is anxiety. Mm. It's vaguer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a, 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 a focal point to it. It's, it's wallpaper. It's, it's white noise. It's, mm-hmm. it's the way it is, baby. That kind of defeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel remiss in not properly introducing how I came to your work before we started. As I mentioned, I was super nervous to speak to you because I hold you in such high esteem. It was in 2014 and a dear friend of mine uh, had stage four colon cancer. He was in his forties. He went in for surgery. He came out with a feeding tube and a colostomy bag. And he said, I don't want to do it like this. He had a very kind doctor who, this was before it was legalized in California, agreed to help him exit this realm, but he had, you know, about a week and a half downtime. So I was blessed to be spending time with him. And um, I just moved back to Los Angeles from New Mexico and a friend had synchronistically sent me one of your videos. Now this was before, like at that time on YouTube, I think there were, it was like a three part series. They were very low rent. Um, not like great production value. And I remember sitting in front of Steven's house, like just devouring all of your information. Um, and, you know, it was an interesting situation because he knew that he was dying and he was giving everything away. And I got to spend quite a lot of time with him those last 10 days and see people come over to receive things from him and see, you know, one of the main things that I got from those videos was, Anything that's coming up in the face of someone else's death is my fear of my own death and seeing other people around him and their reactions and also feeling him with the veil so thin and what a sacred 
moment in his journey at the end of his journey this was and it really changed me um and i was really emboldened by the information that i got from you and when he did pass the dominant narrative was that it was tragic because he was so young and in my mind i thought this was a such a successful death he he got to tie everything up he got to say goodbye he was really empowered in it um and i'm wondering from your perspective what determines a tragic death that word is so often like just like inextricably bound to death but i feel like it's so often misused yeah yeah i'd agree with you it's mis it's overly used too to the point where we don't really know what tragic is tragic like a hangnail is tragic like um you 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 backed your car into a tree i mean where does it end right if it's just disagreeable is it tragic and so well um thank you very much for the kind words by the way i do appreciate it and i'm going to have to take some of what you said and apply it to you for a moment it goes like this you've asked me what are the indicators of a bad death and i would say most of the indicators you use to characterize your friend's good death i would use those same characterizations to describe what a bad death how it goes now i'm not being clever here's why i'm saying so it goes back to a couple of things we were talking about i think in the last question if you have if the fundament of your situation if we're culturally speaking about dying we can't segregate dying as a kind of remarkably austere and particular activity that's uninfluenced by anything that goes on around it quite the contrary it's the sum not the exception it's the sum of what prevails before it mm-hmm. right in other words as you've probably heard me say people die the way they lived it's exceedingly rare that you have some kind of deathbed or or terminal uh uh diagnosis realization that sends all kinds of vectors of lucidity and wisdom your way that's exceedingly uncommon so if that's what you're waiting for anybody who's listening to this don't wait as no doubt says what are you waiting for so so if that's the case generally speaking and your friend may indeed be an exception to what i'm saying now but generally speaking if you get what you want it's not a reflection that things are going well mm-hmm. it's a reflection about the nature of your wanting Mm-hmm. So if you if you want your death to be your death that you exercise dominion that you are the exponent the benefactor and the performer of your death drama if this is I'm I'm using words that are slightly charged now obviously then this is not an indication that all is well in the firmament this is an indication baby it's more of the same You might as well be talking about your backyard. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same impulse, exactly the same terrain, exactly the same sense of sovereignty, inviolable rights and the rest. So I'm suggesting to you this that what a death is and it's one death at a time we're talking about now not mass catastrophes. One death at a time, your death is entrusted to you. It doesn't belong to you. any more than your breath or your pulse belongs to you okay it's entrusted to you 
So when you turn it back, when you, re you return it from whence it came, you want at some level for it to be at least as in good operating order in terms of the the morality and the, the the consciousness you were able to bring to bear upon the situation, you turn it back in some kind of respectful way. You see, getting your own way in a consumer culture like North America is not likely to result in that. And then we come to the other thing, which is all the results of you getting it your way, you don't live. Mm -hmm. So I'm suggesting now that what, what your personal death is, is your probably last, as far as we know, I guess, last opportunity to serve the place that you have been the beneficiary of. That's what it's for. It's not for you to prevail. It's not for you to be okay even. I mean, one, one more point on the matter of being okay. I mean, I know this sounds monstrous. Taken out of the context I've been trying to establish here, it sounds like I'm, I'm writing a recipe for a white-knuckled terror run. And you know I'm not doing that at all. What I'm suggesting here is there's a lot of unintended consequence for North Americans getting their way. Just, just take ayahuasca as one little example. If you pull the ayahuasca thread long enough and hard enough, <clears throat> you find what it's attached to way back in the Amazon. And it starts to it starts to go like this. And the consequences you never intended, socio-political consequences in the Amazon amongst those people who were born to that medicine. Mm -hmm. What's the consequence of all the dot-com millionaires from San Francisco flying down en masse to get their treatments? Does anybody care? Does it matter? As long as it's as long as there's upside, does it matter? And I'm suggesting to you, shit, yes, it matters. It really matters. And if it's a loss to you, that's one of the things that matters. Mm. So it's the same thing with, with dying to me, that dying is a, is a kind of cultural patrimony. I've never actually said this before in this fashion, but it strikes me as true. It's a kind of cultural artifact. It's a kind of cultural richness, like, um, like tapestries or uh, and a kind of pottery form that 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 you worked so well and it and it really became an example of the full bloom of human beauty making available in one pot that kind of thing that's what dying is that's why i say it's entrusted to us to fashion of it not something in our own image mm -hmm. but something that bears in mind the immense struggles that are coming for people who are not yet born and your way of dying is one of the stories that people at a small scale have to tell. And are you going to be one of the, are you going to be the, one of the 399 people that died on schedule whose stories I keep trying to tell over and over again? Are you going to be the hero who didn't die on schedule, who prevailed, who got it right, who got their way and so forth? You know, which story tends to get told. It's the one exception. These are the ones that people bother me with all the time. And I don't argue with them. I say, look, you tell the story of the hero as often as you need to. No problem. And you won't get any argument from me. But I'll tell the story of the 399. And if we keep telling, maybe all 400 who died at that moment, their stories don't disappear without a trace. But if you keep telling hero stories, 
the stories of the rest, the ordinary, the walking wounded, they tend to disappear. And then, then you're on a kind of collision course with spectacle, mm. moral spectacle, a mythic spectacle, a, a, a lysergic spectacle, whatever it is. And uh, I've never seen much good come from a spectacular demise. for tuning in to this latest episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I am reminding slash thanking you to and for (laughs) clicking that subscribe button for liking, for sharing, for commenting, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As you are receiving any value from my podcast, as you dig it, as you listen regularly, consider supporting me on Patreon and or Locals, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, as well as oodles of bonus content. Your support really goes a long way in supporting me as a journalist and an independent content creator navigate her way through a really crunchy time in terms of free speech. And as you are wanting to learn more about my work in the world, my books, my products, my quantum languaging, coaching, and consulting, you can find me at dannycats.com as well as quantumlanguaging.com. And if you're not down with a membership patronage platform and want to send me one-time donation, You can use the Bitcoin link if it actually appears on your podcast listening platform. You could also send me a one-time donation by way of PayPal at dannycats at pm.me or by way of Venmo where my username is Sadie Bloom. Again, your support means the world and makes a massive, massive difference when it comes to continuing to share this work with the world. Thank you for sharing your sacred attention with me. Thank you for remembering that you are omniscopic amazingness and for having a rockin' day. See you next time, superstars.